gotta come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Okay, so I think you get the point. In order for us to see the future, we need to go back to the past. In order for us to understand the 21st century church that God has planned for us, I think it's important for us to go back to the Bible. Go back to the places where the Bible describes, and much to our advantage, the Bible offers very detailed descriptions of what the church is supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like. And it's in a book of the, of the Bible called The Acts of the Apostles, which is written by Luke, in case you were wondering from our Bible reading uh, situation today. <laughs> I, I, I ran into Mark as he was going and I was coming in and we laughed and laughed and laughed. Was, we love that guy. He's so super smart that it's, it's always funny when the super smart people like just completely can't find a name. Uh, it was Luke. So Luke wrote, Luke wrote the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles and it tells the story of what happened after Jesus died, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. It's a story of you, church. It's a story of me. It's a story of us. And now I'm not just talking about Lutheran Church of Hope. We are a small, teeny tiny part of a much bigger whole. A church that is billion strong around the world today with incredible potential. Untapped potential. I'm holding uh, these skis. I brought these with me. They're from our storeroom at home. Uh, they are heart skis, and they are called free spirit skis, which is really right on theme with the book of Acts, because the Holy Spirit shows up, gives birth to the church, and changes the heart of the pe hearts of the people who are there. That's only a little small sort of subplot as to why I brought these skis. These skis are kind of, I've kept them all these years. I've had them since seventh grade. I won them in a, um, in a contest at our bank. I went to the bank with my mom in seventh grade. That was back when people went to banks in person and, you know, they showed up and, and like, filled out forms and went to the thing, a person called a teller, and you, like, did transactions and stuff. So while my mom was doing all that, I, I was looking around the lobby of the bank, and they were having a contest to give away a free pair of skis, downhill snow skis, and I was pretty excited because I was born in Idaho. Then I lived in Montana before moving to the Midwest, and like a lot of, of my friends in grade school, starting in first grade, what we would do on a weekly basis, this was what we do every winter, all winter. It's one of the advantages of living in the Rocky Mountains, at least back then, a generation or two ago, is we would get on the school bus in Kellogg, Idaho, and it would take us out to Lookout Mountain on the border of Montana and Idaho, this massive Rocky Mountain ski resort, but we were safe because we'd go with the ski instructors and the ski patrols. They had a whole program for us all day, and as you grew in skill and as you grew in years, you could kind of move up, and eventually you'd make it to the Black Diamond, you know, Double Diamond Mountains and go up the highest chairlifts, and you were with your friends, and, and you got to, you know, have lunch in the chalet, in, in, in the ski lodge, and, and you got home on Saturday in time for dinner. You get up Sunday morning, go to church, watch football games, or go play with your friends all afternoon, get back inside Sunday night to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom with Marlon Perkins, and that was followed by the wonderful world of Disney, and how, else? Oh, I'm not the only one who's 57. I see what I'm, I see what you're saying. Man, that was a weekend for a kid. I mean, I feel sorry for kids who didn't grow up with that pattern. I'm sure there are other patterns that are just as good. That was just mine. My favorite part of Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Isn't it funny when we say Mutual of Omaha's? I'm sure Mutual of Omaha's really glad. I've just plugged them four times now in this sermon. I'm not getting, I'm not getting, I'm not a paid endorser for any insurance company except I'm all for yours, whichever one that is. But Marlon Perkins would go out into these terrible situations with his sidekick, Jim. 
Remember the one where Jim was getting strangled to death by a snake in the Amazon River somewhere in South America? And I think Marlon actually said, shoot him in the butt with a stunt gun, Jim. That was my favorite. My, my, my brothers and friends and I laughed about that for years. I still laugh about that when I think about it. It's like, well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot a snake in its rear end. How does a snake have a rear end? I don't know. But somehow Jim survived. And then we watched Disney. And we ate popcorn. And it was... It was glorious. But the best part, the highlight of the weekend on Saturdays was skiing with friends. So I signed up for these skis because I love to ski. The only problem was now we'd moved to the Midwest. And there's a massive difference between the Rocky Mountains of Idaho and Montana and Buck Hill in Burnsville, Minnesota. <laughs> in Montana and Idaho, when you get on the chairlift, you, you needed to get comfortable because it would take a while. Right? It was a trip. And then on the way down, you know, you, you weren't going to just scoot down in a minute. It, it was an adventure. It was a good 10, 15, 20-minute kind of thing to it. And, uh, and then, you, you know, get back and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. At Buck Hill, the chairlift takes about two minutes unless it gets stuck. <laughs> and then going down Buck Hill takes about eight seconds and then you get in line for another hour and a half, and, and you go back around and around. So I kind of lost my passion for downhill skiing when I moved to the Midwest, which is why I never even got bindings for these skis that I won. But there's a little bit of sadness to that whenever I see these skis. They never reached their potential. They never have become what they were created to become. And they're still good. I mean, the edges are still sharp. I can feel them on my fingers. I'm sure that they would work just fine. And maybe someday, you know, maybe someday I'll, I'll set them free and I'll let them be what they were made to be. Here's the thing, church. These skis represent, and I say this with nothing but love in my heart, too many Christians in the world today. Maybe you. Full of potential. Made for something you aren't doing. Missing the point of why God made you in the first place. You we're made to be the church of Jesus Christ, to belong to the God who created the whole universe, who set you up for a purpose, who, who has a reason, who wants to fill you with his spirit and set you free and, and change your heart along the way, who wants you to be what God has made you to be. But we miss that. And if we do continue to miss that, we will never become, and I'm not just talking about individually, but collectively as the Christian church in the world today. I'm not just talking about this congregation. I'm talking about the global church. Wow, it's a sleeping giant billions strong around the world and if ever if it ever awakens to become what it's supposed to be what it was made to be I'm not talking about becoming something that would be a huge stretch that is try to try to become something we're really not made to be but we just try really hard and if we get close well that's better than not trying at all this isn't a pep talk this is just an identity check this is us going back to the future to rediscover who it is that God made us to be in the first place just to claim it say, God made us to be skis, so we were made to be skied upon. God made us to be the church. Do you know what that means? How familiar are you, how familiar, familiar are you with the biblical definition of what a church is? I think it might surprise you. 
One of the things I wonder about is if the Apostle Peter came back into the world today, if he got into a, you know, Doc Brown's De DeLorean from the Back to the Future movies and somehow was able to transport from heaven to earth for, and right into the 21st century, not back into the day where he lived, but back into our day. And he started visiting churches around the world. Would he even recognize it? Sadly, I'm kind of concerned that he wouldn't because the church that got established doesn't always look a whole lot like the church that is and, and that is moving forward into the future. So is it really any wonder that there are some pretty serious pockets of the church that are in massive decline and are starting to fade fr from the horizon because we've lost our way, we've lost our identity. I think what Peter would see among other things, maybe the thing that he'd see first and foremost, I'm not talking about the shallow things. I'm not talking about stylistic things. I'm talking about substantive things. Our, our story, if we go back into history so that we can get a clearer perspective of the future, has some seriously deep roots. We, we've got a foundation. We're, we're not just talking about, well, what's the church going to do next? Well, let's have some meetings and decide. There's a lot of things about the church we don't get to vote on that, that aren't, you know, uh, church council opinion or, or pastor's opinion or, or anybody else's opinion or we're going to take a vote on that. There, there are things that God says, this is who you are. This is what I've made you to be. I think one of the things that would be most readily disturbing to Peter, he says, where did this mentality come from that you go to church for an hour, hour and a half uh, on a Sunday and then the rest of the week you do a bunch of other things? It's not biblical. The Greek word in Luke's book of Acts, in the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ecclesia. Ecclesia doesn't mean a building. It's not a place where we go. It's not a synagogue or a temple. It's not this sanctuary. Ecclesia is you. It's people. You're the church. You don't, biblically speaking, go to church. You gather together as the church. And I do too. We do together. We gather together as a, we congregate. We, a congregation. We come together to worship the Lord as this gathered assembly. That's what the church is according to the Bible. So I think Peter would look and go, what, what's this? I just go to church for a little while and then the rest of the week I have my life. No, you're to be the church 24-7 all the time. So understand, wherever you go, the church is there. When you go to school, the church is there. When you go to work, that's the church. When you hang out with your friends, the church is there. That's the church. And God says, let your light shine. And Jesus reminds us that, that, that we belong to him. The apostle Paul says later in the New Testament, we're the body of Christ and individually members of it. This is who we are. I think Peter would also be Shocked and horrified to see that there are a lot of churches that are trying to point people to themselves more than they are to Jesus Christ. To personalities and preachers who care more about their brand and fashion over fundamentals and say and start quoting themselves and, and making the mottos of their church things that they've said instead of the timeless truths of God's word. But I suppose that's what happens when people just stand up and decide, well, I want to be a pastor now, so I am. Instead of having accountability, instead of having processes, instead of having people around us. One of my favorite things to do in this church is to meet with our pastors. Uh, they meet every, the pastors here meet every week. We've got some just absolutely brilliant minds, incredible theologians in this church, and we hold each other accountable. We, 
We don't make a big deal out of that, but we do. I mean, we laugh, we share, we, we, we pray, we enjoy each other's company. But we also hold each other accountable. Say, here's what scripture says. Instead of just saying, well, this is what I think. This is what I think our church should do. This is where I think we should go. We're grounded. There's a deeper story here. So let's turn the pages back to the book of Acts and discover a little bit more about that story. As we do, we're going to find that, uh, that, that our roots run incredibly deep. If you're visual learners, there's a video I want to show you now. It's animated. It's really done, well done. It's by a, a group called The Bible Project, and almost all their videos are just... I mean, again, these are people who um, have studied, who are not phoning it in. These are people who are not just flash-in-the-pan kind of ministries. And so is it any wonder that they burn out eventually? Because it was really never about Jesus Christ. It was about them. Or it was about style over substance. I, I had somebody tell me in the last six months that they're thinking of leaving our church because not enough people put their hands up during worship. All right, well, don't let the door hit you in the backside on the way out then, Okay. Because that is the most shallow reason I think I've ever heard. Until the very next day when somebody told me, I'm thinking of leaving this church. I said, why? Because too many people put their hands up during worship. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So let me be clear on what the Bible says on this. For those of you who like to throw your hands up in the air, you go right ahead. And if any of you are like, well, not enough high enough percentage is doing it, so I'm not going to do it. Oh, so you're putting your hands up in the air isn't really spirit-driven, isn't it? It's just like, well, if everyone's doing it, I'll do it. That's the wrong reason. You should do it when the spirit moves you and inspires you to do it. And if the spirit doesn't move you to do it, do us all a favor, don't do it. But the Bible says it's a natural posture of worship for some people to raise their hands. But other people... It's just not in their DNA. Let me tell you something about Norwegians, for those of you who aren't. For those of you who don't, or Scandinavians, or Germans, or people who come from a certain part of, of Europe, which are the people who started the Lutheran Church. They have been trained, generation after generation, century after century, that one of the most important things in their lives is to be stoic, to put on a poker face, to never let anybody know what they're feeling. And so if they are dying, I mean, an excruciatingly painful death, what they say is, and you say, how are you feeling today? Not bad. You know, they're, they're just, they're just pissed. And you say, how are you feeling today? Not bad. You know, they're, they're, just, they're just crumbling apart. These are not people, no matter how much, because they've been, for generations they've been taught, that's just not the way to do life. It's not better, sometimes it's worse. They're also not good at hugs, which is not good for you. You should get good at hugs, right? They're not good at a lot. If they're not good at showing emotions, they're not good at saying, I love you. <laughs> well, I told my wife I loved her 50 years ago. If anything changes, I'll let her know. <laughs> that is not good for you or your wife, all right? You tell her you love her. I suck it up. It won't be easy. You're going to sweat. It's going to make you nervous. But she deserves it. Or he deserves it. Because some of you women are more stoic than the men. I'll let them know. Right. Look, have some grace for one another. Quit letting shallow things be the thing. This is not consumeristic spirituality. That's not a biblical definition of the church. I'm going to go somewhere where I feel more comfortable because more hands are up or more hands are down. Unreal. 
You're better than that. Dig deeper. Our story goes so much deeper than this. Take a look at this video from these Bible Project guys. For those of you who are new to the book of Acts, this will be a great introduction. For those of you who know it deeply, inside and out, this will be a really good refresher. Take a look. Their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival. It's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. Yeah, exhilarating. It must have been. And it is. Still today when we get it right, church. You know, one of the greatest things about the story in Acts 2, the origin story of the birth of the Christian church, is that people are coming from all over the place to Jerusalem for this holy day called Pentecost. Some of them are probably more stoic than others. Probably some of them are more expressive than others. There's something beautiful in the variety. There's something holy in it. There are people who were in the midst of that day of Pentecost probably were singing and dancing and shouting and putting their hands up. And if during the closing song today you want to come and make this a mosh pit right here in front of the front row, you go with my blessing. If the spirit leads you to do it, you go. You sing, you dance. We've got a tambourine over here somewhere with the choir, right? You, you just let it rip. But at the same time, don't underestimate how deeply the stoic people around you are feeling it, just because they aren't expressing it in some sort of outward manifestation. Doesn't mean they aren't feeling it just as deeply as somebody who's singing and dancing and hitting the tambourine. That's the beauty of it, is that we're united, we're, we're unified as one, and if you need to only be with people who are like you, who see the world like you, who vote like you, who express themselves in worship like you, you do not have a biblical definition of church, and you've made something else your Lord, other than Jesus. You've made the way you do it more important, the style is more important than the substance. The, the, the worldly things are more important than the timeless, eternal things. 
And that's not church. Biblical definition of church is we appreciate one another. We love one another, even though we're different. We, 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 we're glad that there are people here who worship in ways that aren't the way that I might do it. We're, we're grateful that God still holds us together as one, even though sometimes we cancel each other out at the polls on voting day. We're, we're glad that God keeps us unified as the body of Christ, even though we come from different backgrounds and have different ethnicities and have, have different real-life world experiences. Yet we find that we have this common denominator that's stronger, that holds us together as one. This is the biblical picture of church. And as you saw in that video, there's even more to the story there. There's the, the, the power, the symbol of this power is fire. Everyone say fire. fire. Now nah, say fire, because that's kind of what it is. But this isn't just a fire that shows up in the book of Acts as tongues of fire, Acts 2 says, or, or pillars of fire start dancing on tops of the people's heads, but they don't burn them up or consume them. It's just a symbol or a, a sign of something deeper. And so it is. But we have to go back a lot further, back to the future, a lot further than just 2,000 years ago. To see our future, we have to go back into history a lot further than 2,000 years ago in the book of Acts. We have to go all the way back to the times of Moses, centuries before into the B.C.s. And read the story in the Old Testament of how God set a fire on top of Mount Sinai when he made this covenant. This, this holy deal with his people. Where he says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and I'm going to bless you with my law, my commandments, including the Ten Commandments. And go ahead and put them inside this ark. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Go ahead and put them inside this ark and it's going to be a holy space. And the way it's going to be signified is that I'm speaking through these commandments, that this is me and these commandments, is there's a fire on top of Mount Sinai with smoke and all the people are like, whoa, that's serious power. Because they're in the presence of God. You're like, man, if only I could experience something like that. Turn the page just a little deeper in the story. God's people, the Israelites, are moving from slavery to freedom of a new life and a promised land, which is the same thing that's happening in the world today. As we move from slavery to sin to the freedom of a new and an everlasting life through the blood of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. The central story of the Old Testament, this exodus for, from slavery to freedom as they're wandering. And I don't want you to just think of a, you know, relatively uh, medium-sized group of people, uh, a few hundred or a few thousand people. Most biblical star scholars and historians believe it's probably a whole lot closer to a million people. A million people, the nation of Israel, is coming out of slavery, trying to find their way to this land that's been promised to them. And it takes them 40 years. Talk about an organizational challenge. So when you read through some of the drier parts of the Old Testament, it's God giving painstaking detail as a blessing to his people. Here's how you're going to get organized during this challenging time of the wilderness. You know, like maybe when you go through a pandemic. Here's how you're going to keep the faith. You're going to set up your lives. You're going to reside when you set up camp along the way. Wherever you set up camp, you're going to set up in 12 different groups or tribes of people. And then at the center of the camp is going to be the tabernacle, which is the holy ground. But it's not on accident that's at the center of the community. And in that tabernacle, you'll put the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you remember from Mount Sinai, represents the presence, the holy, powerful, awesome presence of the creator of the universe coming down to earth, the infinite becoming finite for us, as he does through Jesus Christ later. God shows up for his people 
in Mount Sinai with fire. And now he shows up in the tabernacle as they're wandering through the wilderness. And lo and behold, what is it that shows up over the tabernacle? A pillar of fire. It's a pillar of fire by night that continues to lead them. Connected to this Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. You turn the page and where does the Ark of the Covenant go? As we move through the Old Testament and even get into the New Testament, to the times of Jesus and Peter in the book of Acts, it moves into the temple in Jerusalem. Here's some pictures I took when I was in Jerusalem with my wife and some friends in 2012. Um, Not professional, very amateur, but I hope you get kind of a glimpse. A lot of you have been there, but if you haven't, it's holy ground. Here I am walking with our tour guide um, through a pathway that Jesus' legend says walk that particular pathway. And even if it wasn't exactly that pathway, you know what blew me away? I'm in the neighborhood. And that's more than enough for me. And then as we're getting closer to the Western Wall, here come some Orthodox Jews coming this way. And I just thought that was a cool time to take a picture. And and Israeli brides show up at the Western Wall to pray. This is the same wall that was there in Jesus' day. The temple that he went to with his family to celebrate the holy days as a Jewish boy and, and as a man with his disciples. The temple where he taught. People gather all over and it's holy. But here's the really incredible new move of God. From Old Covenant, another word for covenant, by the way, is testament, to New Covenant, New Testament, New Deal. I'm making a new deal for you. So after Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, and ascends to heaven, he says, wait. Because the Holy Spirit will descend upon you. And you're going to like this, Jesus is saying. He says this all throughout the Gospels. And if we go back into the Old Testament prophets from centuries before, places like Jeremiah, God speaks to his people and says, the days are coming when I'll make a New Testament with you. You remember the Old Testament. Here's my laws. It'll bless you and your relationships with people and your creator if you follow them. It'll be better for you. But I'm going to give you something even better. I'm going to give you a new covenant, a new testament, a new deal. The days are coming, and they're coming soon. Keep the faith, hold on, pass this good news on to to your kids and to your grandkids and, and to future generations so everybody holds on to this faith. Because the God who is present, signified by his fire in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant now is in in an inner room called the Holy of Holies that is so holy, according to the Old Testament laws, only one particular priest from one particular tribe can enter into it once a year. To make a prayer of atonement on behalf of all of God's people. Holy. Glorious. Awesome the presence of God is. Have you forgotten? What it would mean? You say, well, that's great. That's great for them. That's great for the priests back then. But now there's just one wall left. The rest of the temple's been destroyed. So where's the ark? Where's God? Where's his presence now? That's where we come into the story. That's the biblical definition of the church. Acts chapter 2. No longer is it just you have to go to Mount Sinai or you have to go to the tabernacle or you have to go to the temple or you have to come to church in order to find God. You will find God in those places. But it's with you, the presence of God, the holy and majestic and glorious full power of God's presence is with you. Because what happens to the church? 
on the day of its origin, on the day that it's born, pillars of fire start showing up, not just over the room where all the disciples are gathered, but over each and every one of their heads. That's you, church. That's your potential. That's who God has made you to be, to experience the full power of God's presence in your daily life. So wherever you go, you go as an ambassador of Jesus Christ and a representative of the church. You are the church, the Bible says. Did you know this? Did you understand this? This is who you are. You're like, well, why do we get, if if God isn't here and God's everywhere, then why do we gather here on Sunday mornings or other times of the week too for worship? Because that's what the church does. And that's also in our history. I'll say just a short word about that at the very end. But here's one more clarifying word, and then we're going to get to the really fun stuff. Peter stood up in Acts chapter 2, because people were freaking out, man. (laughs) They were just freaking out. They're like, what's with the fire on tops of people's heads? What's going on? And maybe you've never understood this. Maybe you always thought, yeah, that's just weird, man. That's crazy. It's just, you know, God. Wow, cool. It's more than that. It's rooted all the way back to the central story of the Old Testament. It's rooted all the way to the holy temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. More importantly for you in 2021, church, God is with you. It isn't just you out there. God is with you. The presence of God is with you. Open your heart. Let him set your spirit free. Not to become something you can't be, but try really hard. Just to claim who you are who God says, this is who you are. This is how I choose to be my church. You have the full power. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And most importantly, to be filled with God's Holy Spirit, you are loved. Be loved, church. Be loved of God. Be loved so that you can be loving, so that you can share the light of God's love with the world around you. Peter steps up and he explains this to people. And when he does it, he goes back in time. He goes back into history. And he says, look, the prophet Joel said that this would happen, that the Holy Spirit would show up and young men and women and old men and women would prophesy and see dreams and visions. It shouldn't surprise you. This is a fulfillment of that centuries-old prophecy. This is God. This is what God does for his church. And so they were inspired and walking with power and confidence, not really worried about what the world says about them anymore, not so focused on the things that aren't going to give us life, but focused on the one thing that can give us life. Peter stepped forward and he shouted all this to the crowd, and verse 40 says he preached a very long sermon, as all the best sermons are. (laughs) Hey, it's in the Bible, I'm just saying. Sermonettes make Christianettes. So Peter gets done, and he says, Joel, the prophet Joel, God said through Joel this would happen. And then he traces it back even deeper into history to King David, your heroic king, who pointed to this Jesus. And then he points us to Jesus, to his death and resurrection. And he says, you know, you put this Jesus to death, but God raised him from the dead. We're talking about that kind of power. Resurrection from the dead kind of power. It's on you. It's with you wherever you go. Start acting like it. Start being who God has made you to be, church. 
You say, well, you better be careful with that because if church people get, get, let that get to their heads, they're going to walk out with arrogance and, 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 and way too much self-righteous pride. Yep, that happens. And that's part of what Peter wouldn't recognize because he'd be going, that's, that's not Christianity. Christianity is Christ-centered and to be Christ-centered means to know that we're loved and to share that love with the world around us. Peter says all these things and he points people to Jesus and the people are cut to the heart and over 3,000 people are baptized that day, which is good news for a 21st century church too. The other week, last Sunday, in fact, at the 11 o'clock service, when we got done with the service, I was speaking to somebody down here and, and uh, there was some commotion over off to the side, um, but I was in a, another conversation. I couldn't really go to that. So Pastor Jeremy I saw him on the corner of my eye come down and take care of it. Next thing I know, Pastor Jeremy's up at the baptismal font baptizing a 14-year-old boy who says, ha, I have got so convicted during the service today, I just want to be baptized. We didn't even talk about baptism. We didn't, we didn't even, in the sermon, it wasn't even a point in the service. The week before at a Saturday night service, a 15-year-old girl, same thing. She comes up, she says, I want to be baptized. God is on the move. This shouldn't surprise us. The prophet Joel says, in those days, your young men and women will see visions and dreams. They will start to see what God wants them to see. They will start to claim that church is more than just holding on to a bunch of traditions that aren't going to give us life, or, or, or sentimental feelings, or, or, or personality cults, or, or, or saying, I like it better this way instead of that way. That church is something so much more substantial, so much more deeply rooted, so much more potential. And when they claim that, they're like, I I don't think I could be the same again. I want to go with God. I want to follow a new way, and I want to mark it at the the waters of baptism. So when the people are cut to the heart, they come to Peter after he preaches this long sermon. They said, Peter, what should we do? And Peter says, simple, just repent, which means change the way you think. Instead of living for this world, live for God. Start to see who you are. Start to see that the fire could be with you, could fill you up because the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and it's for your children and it's for all the generations that will follow and who will believe. Repent, number one, change the way you think and number two, be baptized. It's a sign of this transformation, of this new life, of this new heart, of the spirit that's in you. So that's what the church does and that's how we were born. That's our story That's who we are. Most importantly of all, we are loved by God. God's grace is in us, and then it pours out of us to the world around us. And that changes everything. And where do we get that? From the five key principles that Acts chapter 2 ends with. The story of the birth of the Christian church ends with this description of, so this is what the church did. And no matter how many things change, these things are timeless and stay the same. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and what they were teaching was scripture. They were teaching God's word. They devoted themselves to discipleship. See, that's cool. They devoted themselves, you know, disciples, to, to following Jesus. Yeah, that's kind of a loose definition of what discipleship means. Discipleship literally means student of Jesus Christ. Someone who's hungry to learn. Somebody who wants to grow in God's word. Pastor Amanda did the announcements last night, and she's our discipleship team leader here at Hope. She said, you know, right, church, that we have one million classes for you to take this fall. Options. She says, I'm only exaggerating a little bit. We have all these different groups and classes and ministries and opportunities and places where you can plug in so that you can grow in your faith. 
And we say that and we make that invitation. If you're new, start with Alpha. If you've already taken Alpha, find something else. We make that invitation so strongly because we love you. And we know that there's no better way to find your way in this world than to grow in the timeless truths of God's word. Number two, they did life together. That's what verse 42 also says. A faithful church for the 21st century is going to do the same things that the faithful church did back in the first century. We're going to devote ourselves. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It means this, this family of God that we become truly family, sisters and brothers in Christ, with God as our heavenly father. We do life together not just so that we can make friends. That's an added benefit. That will happen. But I want you to think more as servants, not as consumers, when you enter into these community groups. I want you to ask the first question, what can I bring to this group? Do more listening than talking. Do, do more, bring some empathy, bring some love, bring some grace. Instead of judgment and condescension and what's in this for me. So what can I give instead of what can I get? I don't know that it's any real big surprise how refreshing that kind of love is. A love that doesn't need someone to be perfect in order for them to, you know, hang out with me. A, a love that cares, a love that has compassion. A love that, as my dad used to say, kills them with kindness. What is the ancient biblical definition of love? I'm not talking about the world's definition of love, which says things like, if people do you wrong, dismiss them. Get them out of your lives. The biblical definition of love is love is patient and love is kind. How many of you, don't raise your hand, just answer as a Norwegian, you know, pretend you are deep down. How many of you have issues with patience? That's not love. Love is patient. Love is kind. That could be hard too. Because it's so easy to go the way of the world where, where people who aren't kind seem to get more attention. And don't we all want more attention once in a while? So if I just lash out at people, maybe everyone's going to listen to juicy gossip. It's not kind. It's not love. Love believes all things, bears all things, endures all things. Here's one that's just really hard. Love keeps no record of wrongs. But I want to. I want to hold the grudge. I, I want to never forget. I want to say, I will never forgive you for that. And the world goes, yeah, like the tweet. Yes, 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 yes. Never forgive. That's not love. That's not life. That's not what we were made for. Oh, I know it's swimming upstream in the downstream world. I'm not saying it's easy. But life together is more than just going to a group and seeing if you like people. Life together is coming into a group and saying, I'm bringing the love. I'm bringing the grace. I'm bringing the mercy. I'm bringing the empathetic ear. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the fact that I'm loved so that I can love. I'm bringing the inspiration with my heart in the right place. Since the pandemic started, the most uh, critically acclaimed, it's now been nominated for 20 Emmy Awards TV show that people are binging left and right is called Ted Lasso. I've been waiting a long time to show a Ted Lasso clip, but you're the lucky people who get to see this. So Ted Lasso, is a, the story is, he's a college football coach from the United States who for some reason <laughs> is hired to be a head coach of a soccer team in the Premier League in England, which is a huge deal over there. Not as huge here, but getting huger. 
So he goes over there, and then, you know, the comedy is that it's this whole culture shock for him, and he doesn't really understand soccer, but he understands people and coaching. And the owner of the team, played by this very strong, strong woman, uh, has kind of set him up. She's like, who's the worst person I could hire to be the coach so that I could fire him to spite the man who's divorcing me because he's having affairs with other people who used to be the co-owner of this team, but now it's mine. So I'm going to ruin the whole team, which is his beloved kind of pet, the, the ownership of this team. I'm going to ruin the team for him by bringing in a coach who's going to destroy it, Ted Lasso. But Ted Lasso brings the light of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the kind of show, sadly, because of the language and some of the adult themes that you probably should sit down with your kids like you watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. <laughs> but Ted Lasso is a Christ-like figure. Watch this. And watch for the love that's patient and kind and turns the other cheek and relentlessly offers grace and mercy when it would be so easy to just completely dismiss her. And look at the outcome, too. Take a look. Knock-a-doodle-doo. Ah, oh, good morning, Coach Lasso. Hey, look at us. A couple of worm-addicted early birds, am I right? Oh. Well, I'm glad I caught you. I brought you a little something. Oh. Yeah, cookies. <laughs> or, as y'all call them here, biscuits, right? Though I do not recommend you smother these in gravy. Oh, Ted, I don't, I don't really... Oh, come on, I'll take a look at there. Oh, those do look good. Right? Go ahead, take a nibble. That's it. Away you go. Where did you get these? Well, I'm glad you like them. You know what? I'll start bringing these to you every morning. Call it Biscuits with the Boss. That really isn't necessary. Okay, well, mark this down as the first time we disagree, then. Actually, no, second time. Uh, tea is horrible. Absolute garbage water. I don't know why y'all do that. Anywho, you know, we can't really be, uh, you know, good partners unless we get to know each other, right? Ted. We're going to start simple. Real easy, real easy one. We're going to no. do uh, first concert, best concert. You go ahead and go first. Go, right off the bat. Uh, the Spice Girls and uh, the Spice Girls. Same answer for both? Oh, I love that. My turn. First concert. Well, I mean, come on. It was the gambler himself, Mr. Kenny Rogers. Okay. You got no win to hold on. Ted. Win to hold on. No win to fold on. Win to fold on. Coach no Lasso. walk away. No win to... Stop. Ted, I'm sorry. Biscuits with the boss is not something that I have time for this morning, or ever. I hear you, boss. Loud and clear. There we go. Okay. You're going to show up tomorrow with biscuits, aren't you? Oh, come on now. I would not bet on that. <laughs> I mean, unless you want to win a buttload of money. <laughs> High five, tree. Woo! There you go. That's it. You're the church. He's, you can almost see the fire over his head, can't you? It's love. It's the power of love. And as season one goes on, I know season two's out, and I haven't gotten to it yet because I dropped Apple TV because I'm frugal. <laughs> season one was so good. I mean, it was so good. And as you followed the story, and I reserve the right to show more clips in the months to follow, as you follow the story, Ted wins her over. And what does he win her over with? Winning fights with her? Showing her how wrong-headed she is? Because she is with love and with grace. And everybody's better because of it. Church is a sleeping giant because this kind of thing could change the world, one relationship at a time. You want to be a part of that? It's what the church does. It's, it's who you are. Number three, and we'll go through these last ones quickly, we pray. 
And so we aren't surprised when miracles happen, signs and wonders. Number four, we um, give generously. We're not just consumers, we're, we're givers because this is how God made us. And finally, number five, told you we get back to this, we worship. We gather and praise God together because that's what the church does and wild horses couldn't keep us away. We're here because it's who we are, not because it's what we do to get some religion for an hour or hour and a half a week. It's who we are. This is what church people do. We praise. We were wired up for it. It's in us. So while the signs of the times are not good and churches are closing left and right, look closer and you'll see the fire. You'll see positive megatrends for the 21st century church. And you'll see that the ones that last, that aren't just flashes in the pan that were built on charismatic personalities or preachers who were more into fashion than the fundamentals, you'll find that it's deeply rooted in the timeless truth of God's word. And that's the stuff that is transformational in this world. And that's why I'm so excited about the future of the church. Wednesday night, my wife and I drove up to Ames to uh, watch, uh, to be a part of the worship service there that was outside in front of the Campanile at Iowa State University. We have a college outreach ministry in this church called Kairos. Kairos is a Greek word that comes from the Bible that means time. But it doesn't just mean chronological time, like, oh, look, it's time for this service to start winding down. And it is. And we will. It's Kairos time. It's more important. It's holy time. It's time that God is set apart for you to know how much you're loved, to know how much the creator of the universe loves you, because that is a transformational truth that changes relationships, that changes hearts, that fills us with God's spirit. So we went to Kairos on Wednesday night up at Ames, and when we got there, we were blown away, because it's a pretty big park, and there was almost no room to even stand in the back. And we stand in the back because we're in our 50s and we aren't going to be those annoying 50-year-olds who are like, hey, college kids, pound me, right? You know, yeah, yeah, woo! We love you, but we're not trying to be you, okay? We'll just be the adults that we are and you be the young adults that you are and we'll respect that and, you know, love each other and do life. But I don't want to pretend I'm a college kid when I'm my age. That'd be weird. So this is church. We're standing in the back and people kept coming and people kept coming and then there's bushes all around this part of the park and there were people riding by on their bikes and they would stop and they would look. On the way out, this, this one college student said to Sally, he said, hey you guys, hey Pastor Mike. I'm like, hey, how's it going? He goes, you know what, my grandma told me to come to Kairos tonight. I said, well that's why you're here. He goes, well not really. Because I totally forgot. Because he's a college student. He's got like a million things in his head, right? Especially as a school year. I totally forgot. I mean, I kind of wanted to go, but I didn't. I wasn't going to come. I just happened to be riding my bike by. And then I stopped at the beginning of the service. Right when I stopped, I looked up. And the first thing that Haley, one of, one of the leaders of Cairo, said was, it's no accident that you're here right now. Blew me away, he said. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances? Not great, <laughs> but I'm glad you're here. He wasn't alone. There were over 900 students who showed up in that park, and that was just the ones that we could count. <laughs> and if you look real close, 
I don't mean physically, you'll see it in this like 30 second video recap. But spiritually, you can almost see the fire dancing on their heads. And this same fire is here for you. God praise. That's awesome. And just so you know, Kairos isn't just the names. We have another newly started one in Iowa City. Uh, Wyatt is our part-time leader out there now. Just hired him. He's, he's an amazingly faithful dude. We've got another ministry at Hope Elam uh, for the Drake students across the street from their church building and for Grandview students and DMAC students and Simpson students and any other college students who want to come. They're starting this Thursday at 7. Kairos and Iowa City and Ames is every Wednesday at 8. Folks, that's just college ministry. Soon it'll be Ignition and Power Life for senior and junior high and Hope Kids and One Body for our younger kids and, and it'll be adult groups and Revive for young adults and it'll be classes and all these ministries and all these places where God could light the fire for you. I mean, if you just know who God made you to be, if you embrace and realize that potential, God has a plan for your life and I really don't want you to miss it. I don't think you want to miss it either. Open your heart to this. Let God set your spirit free. Don't be a pair of snow skis that sit in a storeroom. And that's the way your church life will be described someday. Be who God has made you to be. Be the church. Let him light the fire. Amen?